Welcome to my podcast, Traumatic Transformations, where we help you find hope, peace, and purpose after a big life change or a traumatic event. I'm your host, Gunjani Patel, and I'm a licensed mental health therapist, trauma specialist, and a neuroscience nerd. Join me as I dive deep into resiliency, post-traumatic growth, and normalize mental health to reduce the stigma associated with it. In each episode, I plan to deliver science-backed, actionable tips and strategies so you can take back the control over your life and be inspired to be the best version of yourself with each day forward. So tune in every Tuesday for a featured guest and every Thursday for a solo episode with me, where we unpack mind, body, brain, and spirit connections related to each episode with the featured guest. Just a quick disclaimer before we begin today. The purpose of this podcast is to inform you, educate you, and raise your awareness. It is not intended to replace any medical advice or professional help seeking that you may need. So please use this information wisely and any opinion that I cast is not to replace any medical advice. And quickly before we start today, I just wanted to ask you a favor. If you like what you hear today, don't forget to subscribe so you never have to miss an episode. Thank you so much. And if you rate and review, it would really help us with the algorithm so people can easily search the show if they would like. So I would really love to hear your feedback and what you have to say uh, so I can bring you the content that's most fit for you. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another brand new, very exciting episode today uh, with Traumatic Transformations. I'm your host, Kunjani Patel. And today I have on the show with us um, Donald G, quote unquote, Skip. He really likes to go by Skip. So I'm going to call you Skip throughout the interview. Thank you. Dr. Mondragon. Um, He has practiced internal medicine for over 30 years. He's a 26-year uh, Army veteran, National Veterans Wrestling Champions champion, speaker, and a self-proclaimed amateur wrestling aficionado. Skip has his wife, Sherry, have beautiful uh, five um, adult children, four grandchildren, and reside in um, Texas. He's an author of Wrestling Depression is Not for the Wimps, Lessons Learned from an Amateur Wrestler's fight to triumph over depression. And I cannot, I'm so excited to have you on the show and cannot wait to get and in, dive into the details of your book, your experience and everything that you have to offer. So thank you so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure Bujani, that to get on the show, to share with you and your audience. Thank you. Um, so Skip, tell us um, a little bit about your life. What I, I love your, I love the title of your book, by the way. Really amazing. So I can't wait to dive into that. But tell us a little bit about yourself and get us started about, you know, where, what are some of the adversities um, that you faced in life? And what is the message that you really truly have at this point for myself and my audience? Well, you have to go back to my very earliest years. I grew up in a very chaotic and traumatic Mm. child from a traumatic childhood sure i'm the third of eight children born mm. of parents of very meager means mm. my father who came back from the korean war was an ill man he mm. suffered from alcoholism and what i'm convinced was ptsd and bipolar disorder mm. now my 
my auntie Mary, his eldest, his older sister, and mm. my older cousin say the man that went to war was not the man that came back from war. Mm. He was a broken man. Mm. And when he would drink, he was violent, mm. very violent. Mm -hmm. And my eldest sister tells us that when he'd come home, we'd run and hide because mm. we did not know which dad was going to greet us. Mm. Was it going to be the angry, violent dad? Or was it going to be the kind, gentle, loving dad? Now, mm. I don't have those recollections of those mm. memories. I really don't have any memories till I was seven years old. So that okay. childhood is repressed. Mm. And because of all that trauma. Mm. So that's my earliest years. Sure. I'm the third of eight children, mm -hmm. four younger brothers, two older sisters, and a younger sister. Mm -hmm. And the three older children, we've always had the distinction of being the older kids, albeit there's only 10 years that separate us oh, from wow. oldest to youngest. Sure. And I've always been, growing up, the one that took care of my younger brothers. That's mm -hmm. what it was. Yes. I was in charge of my brothers. Yes. And my youngest brother, you know, could basically walk and stop my mother. Take your little brother with you when we go want to go play. It's like, oh. <laughs> that was oh. me. I have an old sibling. And that, that's yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, <laughs> oh, do we have to, mom? If you want to go, take your brother. Oh, come on, you little kid. No. Well, it's funny now. He and I are the closest, you know. He's like my yeah. alter ego. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with that, my brother, Chris. Mm -hmm. And I was the smallest kid in my class growing up. Mm -hmm. We moved frequently. I was shy. I was awkward both physically and socially. Mm -hmm. And I was an easy target for bullies. Mm. And so I was bullied growing up. Mm. We don't talk much about that, that, but that's very traumatic for a lot of kids. It is. Days, especially, it is. you know, oh my goodness. I see that so much in school. There's, there's all this bullying programs and all this stuff. But that that is difficult because that's a very tender age that, you know, in our adolescence when we were trying to fit in and, you know, going through that phase of life can be difficult for a lot of kids. Right. And the fact that I was awkward mm -hmm. physically, mm -hmm. I didn't know how to play sports. And in my growing up years, if you could have some athletic prowess, it gave you credibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It gave you social standing. And I had no athletic prowess. So guess how much social standing I had Aww. in the eyes of others. <laughs> I can recall in fourth grade, our teacher would take us out at least every quarter, if not more often, and test us on the playground. Boys sure. had to do chin-ups. Yeah. Girls had to do bent arm hang for time. Mm. And I would dread oh. waiting for my name to be called. I would just go... And then when my name was called, all right, Skip, it's your turn. I'd jump up on that bar, the lowest bar, mind you, and I'd grunt, and I'd kick, and I'd uh, pull with all my might. I couldn't do one chin-up. Yeah. And so you would listen to the snickers and the jeers and the laughter and the prodding of the other students. I didn't know how to catch. I didn't know how to throw. I didn't know how, how to do things in terms right. of any sport involving a ball. In fact, I tell people I even failed at tetherball. <laughs> oh, any sport like that. Right. I just basically was a bust. It was not for you back then. Yeah. 
And uh, so that's growing up, you know, mm-hmm. bullied this uh, uh, in, in my er- early years. Mm. Fast forward, fi- my mother, my father dies at 34, but before he died, my mother had remarried mm. uh, to an amazing man, my daddy-o. Mm. And I, I tell people, and we may have some time or may not sure. to get into this, but my, I tell people I got to live with my three greatest heroes. Uh, my abuelita, my little grandma, mm. my mom, my mother dear, mm. and my daddy, my stepfather. Uh, uh. My, my abuelita came to live with us at the age of 64. Wow. At that time, my youngest brother was an infant. My mm. sister Roma was 10 years old. Mm. My mother was going back to school, and my abuelita came to live with us. So wow. basically, she raised us. Wow. So I think about that. 64 years old, and she's coming to take care of eight children. I can hardly think of a one at 40. I don't know. She's a hero. Wow. (laughs) Oh, she was amazing. She only had a third grade education. Now, her dream was to be a nurse. Oh, wow. Her father took her out of school Hmm. after third grade because he wanted her home, helping on their little farm, helping tend around the house, doing those things. And being traditional Hispanics, mm. she didn't need schooling in his eyes. Yeah. So she she didn't get to pursue her schooling. So her way of doing that was vicariously helping my mother to go back to school Wow. and pursue her dream in terms of education. Awesome. Yeah. But fast forward, we moved back to Colorado from New Mexico. My mother's remarried and we... I discovered wrestling mm. and it was the first sport, first time I ever felt after a few practices, hmm, I think I can be good at this. Wow. Okay. I think I can really be good at this. Now, mind you, it was also the first time that there was a level playing field because mm. I didn't have to compete against boys that were bigger than me. Yes. Yes. It was an there even. Because yeah. that, that was a lot of disadvantage being mm a small child being the smallest in the class. Now it's like, okay, I can compete against boys my own size because it was weight classes. Yes, yes, yes. And that uh, helped. Game changer. Right. And I ended up making the varsity team. Yay. Only eighth grader that was on the varsity team. Now, mind you, I didn't win a match that first year, but gave me confidence. Nice. Gave me that Mm self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And the bullies left me alone. Nice. See, it comes back around. Uh, we'll talk about that um, a little bit later on. And as we discuss some of the things that you discuss in your book. So tell us a little bit about your book. I love um, the title of it. So it's, it's kind of give me a little bit of a background on your book and uh, what that period of your life was like. All right. So wrestling depression is not for wimps. Love it. Yes, Absolutely. It was born out of my my own experience with depression. Mm. In my last year, my 26th year of my Army career, I suffered from major depression. It Mm. started in 2013 with insomnia, Mm -hmm. and then my mood getting progressively blue, my cognition getting worse to the point that I went and got tested, Mm. neuropsychiatric testing, Mm -hmm. because uh, I thought I was suffering from pre-senile dementia. Mm. Thankfully, 
I wasn't. Yeah. And then started having problems there with guilt and mm -hmm. shame and indecision and these negative thoughts, the ruminations that mm. we call them, you know, the negative uh, ruminations there. Mm -hmm. You don't deserve to be a colonel. You've let your family down. You've let the army down. You've let your department down. On and on, you know, those would play like an endless yeah. loop. Yeah. Yeah. And insomnia got worse. Aches and pains from old injuries, you know, just got worse. I became socially withdrawn. All these wow. things just got worse and worse. And then to compound that, I had three surgeries over the period of six months. Mm. And each surgery, unfortunately, was fraught with a complication. Yes. Go yeah. figure. Now, the reason I had three surgeries in six months is because I had put off my care, mm. taking care of everybody else. Mm. Because I've been but a caretaker. So yes. Right. Starting back as my youngest years, mm. I've been a caretaker all my life. Right. And so I had put off taking care of myself and I was getting out of the army and I thought, I need to take care of these things before yes. I retire. Yes. And with each surgery, it disrupted my routine. Mm. My sleep compounded my insomnia. My diet was thrown off. My exercise routine, my activity was thrown off. And I relied on that exercise to help take care of my anxiety. And I didn't realize how it did that because I would not have classified myself as an anxious person. Mm. You would ask me during this, are you anxious? No, I'm not an anxious person. Nice. And yeah. only in retrospect, I realized, yeah, I had a lot of anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to deal with it by exercising intensely. Yes. But it would be manifest by irritability. Yes. It would be the primary manifestation of my anxiety would be this irritability that would come up. Yeah. Um, is how it would manifest itself or anger. Mm. Anger is a big one. When unresolved yeah. trauma, one of the biggest things that I see in people is we, we start with anger. So anger is just the tip of the iceberg. And I tell people it's like the most primary emotion we feel. But underneath anger is just so much havoc. It's just shame, guilt, disappointment lack of love for yourself so lack of worthiness all these different deep heavy things that happen mm -hmm. and it just manifests itself as anger all the time yes yes so the symptoms just got worse and worse and worse oh, and worse to the point where you know guilt shame indecision insomnia those negative thoughts played over and over like this lendus loop to the point on April 17th, mm. 2014, I went into my office. I had a beautiful, what I said was one of the best offices at Eisenhower Army Medical Center. Two walls were big windows. Mm. I pulled the curtain shut, turned off the lights, locked the doors, turned off the phones. I ended up, crawled up under my desk mm. in a fetal position and for four hours, I wrestled with the question, Skip, what are you doing? How did you get here? Mm. What are you doing? Yeah. And I became this observer participant mm. and slowly began to put the pieces together. Love it. And finally, I could admit, Skip, you're depressed. Go. Wow. 
get help. What was that like? When I finally could admit to myself and finally could see mm. that I was depressed. Now, mind you, I, in retrospect, I understand what was going on. I'm a tough guy. Mm. I'm a wrestler. Most and guys think they're tough guys. And well, guys that's right. don't suffer from all these things, right? That's right. And, and especially, you know, my self-image, wrestler, soldier. Yeah. Man, you know, I've gutted these things. And we pride ourselves as wrestlers. We gut it out. You know, we yeah. don't give up. Yeah. We just yeah. keep pushing forward. And that's what we're there. And soldiers, you know, it's instilled on you. Yeah, just be all don't you can be. Don't ask for help. That's, a, that's wimpy. That's not courageous. That's yes. Yeah. Indeed. And I had to finally be so depleted. I'm there at the end of my rope, curled up in that fetal position before I could finally put the pieces together. Yes, yes. As a physician. Yes, yes. And <laughs> I'm you know a what? Physician. Oh, so glad you mentioned this because one of the things that you mentioned earlier that um, I actually want to, since we're at this point of your our chat, one of the b- most beautiful things that I read in your book as I was reading through your book, I want to start with this and it's really um, hit home for me because it was so beautifully written and I'm going to read some of that um, just so that my audience have a little bit of an idea of what to look for from your book and from this chat. And you say in it that, you know, no one wants to suffer, yet suffering eventually finds us at some point in our life. I tell others that if you have not experienced deep, life-changing suffering, you simply have not experienced enough life. Sooner or later, profound suffering knocks on each of our doors. I have been battered by suffering for 10 months before I admitted I was depressed and I was formally diagnosed. We can try to ignore suffering, but to no avail, I try to minimize my suffering, ignore it, deny it, scream at it, pray it away. Yet it became my constant unwanted companion. Even in the best of the moments, it resolutely stood next to me. I could not free myself from its grasp. I was no match for this overpowering foe. Suffering, suffering, suffering. My body suffered. I was bone tired. Aches and pains from old injuries and osteoarthritis made the suffering of my mind and spirit worse. Wow. How deep. What we don't address, it compounds with time. And and I specialize in depression, anxiety, PTSD, trauma, addictions, grief, and loss. And that's a, a, a constant ongoing message that I see in my clients when they, in my patients, when they come to me with, you know, some in crisis, because most people don't consider therapy, you know, when, when this process starts or in the middle, <laughs> right. right? It's like, oh, that's for crazy people. That's for <laughs> I, if I only, if only I can at the end of my life, have people starting to think of therapy as, Hey, you know, you take your car in for a tune up, you go to a dentist for preventative care, you go to your P- PCP for wellness check. Why not therapy? Why not mental health? You cannot mind your matter out, mind yourself out of that. You cannot think yourself out of the trauma. It has to be addressed over time at some yes. point. 
And at some point, and and the way we look at suffering, I think, is so different because, you know, and it's so, I, I think it's the mindset shift that we need to do in order for suffering. So tell us a little bit about what that was like for you and who you are as a result of your suffering, because that was very well written. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you. I have never felt so isolated, so guilty, mm. shameful, It, I tell people it was like being in this deep, 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 dark pit, you know, foot of mud, and that there was this long tunnel, mm -hmm. and that my mind was in this fog, mm -hmm. and that I had this sheer exhaustion, mm -hmm. and I was slogging through this mud, and at the end of that long tunnel there was this little speck of light and that's what it was like when i was depressed mm. that it it was horrible yeah it was just horrible uh, to be in that place Absolutely. To, to have this sense of indecision this lack of confidence this guilt this shame yep. this mind in a cloud your body ache you just don't want to do things you don't have the energy you don't have the emotional energy mm -hmm. my wife said in retrospect she told me after i was recovering she said i i wondered where your get up had gone mm. so knowing this confident yep. decisive man that she married mm. i was not that man during that time mm -hmm. of course and, anxious, tremulous, indecisive, guilt-ridden, shame-filled, yeah. isolating individual mm -hmm. that didn't want to interact with others. I just didn't have the emotional energy to do so. It was exhausting to interact with people. I, there, I could make it through the workday, but yeah. beyond that, just hard to do things I, right and i i like interacting with people yep i like how you think doing that but, <laughs> <laughs> but it it just sucked the life out of me to try to do that case yeah. in point yeah yeah after morning rounds at the hospital well I, uh morning report rather where we'd gather with the with the residents and mm -hmm. hear the new ed, about the new admissions and any problems with other admitted patients and discuss those mm -hmm. with the staff and the, the residents, I would typically stop by the, the infusion lab where our chemotherapy patients would be receiving treatment. Mm -hmm. And I would go by, chat with the patients, and sometimes they had family members, many times they didn't, but I would chat by, introduce myself, yeah. talk with them, see how they were doing. And generally, as I've always done throughout my practice, mm. that I incorporate and believe in holistic care, the treatment of body, mind, and spirit. Mm -hmm. I'm a practicing Christian, and I would ask, may I pray with you? Yeah. 
And the vast majority, well, yes, I would like that very much. Mm-hmm. But once I became depressed, I, I just found that I could not do it. I simply did not have the energy, yep. the emotional reserve to take that on and the spiritual energy to do that. It, it just became a, such a daunting task that I could not do it. And so when I was recovering, the first day that I could do that again mm-hmm. was a landmark day. And uh, I still remember that day. And I remember, I remember how I came out of that thinking, oh, my gosh, I, I can do this again. Yeah. It was what what took you to get to that place? What took me to get to that place? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so the day I went for help, initially I went down to my PCP clinic mm-hmm. and I asked for an appointment with the psychologist assigned to the clinic. And they said, Well, you can have an appointment for next week. That's your least. And so so I booked that appointment, went back to my office, and I thought, eh, I don't want to wait that long. Yeah, I was chief of the Department of Medicine, so I called the chief of behavioral health and mm-hmm. uh, spoke with him. And I said, explain what was going on. I said, can can you get me an appointment? Yeah. So he arranged an appointment that afternoon, and I saw a very astute young clinical psychologist that afternoon who did a very impressive evaluation. I must say, very thorough, mm-hmm. and made the diagnosis, major depression. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the interview, she said, my chief and I were discussing and we think there's another psychologist that you would, Fit, would be, well, work but- very well with, that mm-hmm. you would mesh with, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Perry. Mm-hmm. And so we've arranged that you'll start seeing him next week. Nice. And so I started seeing Mike Perry the next week and we hit it off in the beginning He's nice. tall distinguished black man and uh you know there was just this rapport from the start He's a christian man dedicated his family dedicated the army we just hit it off and nice. works works so well together and uh, i owe so much to mike uh, i tell people that during my treatment that i received i uh, the A team was taking care of me. Wow. Yeah. And I love what you say in your book about asking for help can be the first step to recovery. Don't suffer alone. If you're suffering, speak up and ask for help. Once you admit you're depressed, don't let the stigma associated with depression keep you from seeking help. So tell us a little bit about that, because I know there is so much stigma associated with it. You know, depression can also, and one of the things that I want to emphasize from what you just got done saying was people who are high functioning can look high functioning on the outside, but can be suffering very deeply from the inside. So you never know what people are going through just by the looks of things on the outside. And uh, because we we expect, oh, they're depressed. So they're just going to be lying around in the bed, curled up and just, you know, all of a sudden they're going to be zapped by this happiness bug and things is going to get great. But very high functioning, everyday working people can go through some very deep, dark things in their lives that we can be un- that be known to us. So right. absolutely so important to mention that. Well, and that's an interesting point. And I guess I hadn't seen it quite in that light. But mm-hmm. now that you mention it, 
my the only person that wasn't surprised when I disclosed this to my staff and disclosed this to the hospital leaders right was my secretary yeah so I brought in my service chiefs and yeah. disclosed to them I said you know receive this diagnosis I want you to be aware of this and and then you know, well, first I went to my my command staff and yep. shared with them, and then my uh, my staff from my department and my secretary said, "I knew that." <laughs> they always do. <laughs> she she knew that, of course, but none of my other staff. They were all surprised. Uh-huh. My command was all surprised. So, in their eyes, I was holding it all together. Yeah. In fact, one of my one of my friends from uh, you know we're good friends. Yeah. Uh, there still stay in touch and he said how could it get so bad that nobody noticed skip how how could they not notice you know meaning the command how could they not be aware of this skip because you still do your every day but like you said i bet you you went home and you weren't this chatty with your wife sherry or you weren't just so your happy excited self you were just i'm home don't talk to me i'm done you know and just in your own isolated yeah well we would we would interact and and my wife she she is the most amazing person. She always has been my number one fan and faithful. I love that. But but still, there was that withdrawal and there was that guilt and there was that shame and and so my whole persona had had shifted and changed. Yeah. And and, and she was at a loss. So we talked afterwards, you know, yeah. in, in the subsequent uh, months and years, and and she was at a loss. But it was only when things got horrible and and so forth and really diagnosed it, she realized, Oh, this is what's going on because it was somewhat insidious, you know, progressive. Mm -hmm. And 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 she, she even, she didn't even realize she knew the insomnia. She realized, Oh, that was horrible because I'd be getting up and down and up and down all night or, you know, wake up in the middle of the night. Bing and couldn't get back to sleep and and rumination and she was aware of that but uh, she even didn't uh, understand how bad it had gotten and felt badly the 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 suffering that was going on so i realized gee you know i was keeping it together Um, keeping it together yeah right i was hanging on by my fingernails is what i was doing because I'm a tough guy, you know, I'm a man, I'm a soldier, I'm a wrestler, you know, this is what we do. Yeah. And especially in the army, I mean, in the military, you're required to carry on with that persona and not express any weakness because that's how you are trained. And, you know, it's entrenched in you from the very beginning of your training that how can you be weak, you know? So, and (laughs) one of the things, you know, that you mentioned earlier, really, I wanted to mention this as well, because you mentioned some of the things about your childhood Um, And this is how much epigenetics and intergenerational trauma catches up. You know, there was a study done, um, I forget the name of the author, but um, there was a study done that studied PTSD with people who came back from Vietnam War. And they had said that um, 40%, 47%, which is almost 50% of PTSD, um, depression and anxiety 
we care is genetically predisposed. We are genetically predisposed to that. And, you know, uh, 40% is, you know, our perception of some of the events that happen in our life. So, you know, we inherit all these things from our parents, let's say if they weren't diagnosed. And then if we are faced with situations in our lives over time, because depression is not something that just happens, um, uh, a little different than PTSD, but it catches up over time and compounds if you don't take care of certain things as, as they're happening. And, you know, 10% of it is environmental. So your parenting, where you're raised, your beliefs, your values, all of those things then add up and becomes this 100%, you know, explosion that happens in our lives. So really, it's, it's like we are genetically predisposed. And in order to break that cycle, if we heal, if we, you know, are aware that some of these things are happening, like you mentioned, you went and sought help. So now you know, if your children were to go through any of this, then you would be able to catch it and know uh, and show them adaptive ways of dealing with it, tr- send them to treatment, what treatment looks like, because at least you were open to it and you sought treatment. So right. you know now the entire you know picture and you can use adaptive skills to help your children and break that cycle of trauma and that, you know, um, so to speak, that uh, cycle of depression and anxiety that we all most of the time inherit, but don't pay attention to as in when we're triggered. Right. Now, you, you mentioned some key things there, the fact that that accumulation of stress. Mm, and mm. of course, that started way back as a child, continued yeah. through my childhood, yeah, yeah, on into adulthood, uh, that, that stress compounds itself. Yeah. yeah uh, I realized that really until I was writing my book, yes. I didn't realize that I had some depression when I- Growing up first went to college there at the University of Notre Dame. Yeah. That if it hadn't been for this Christian community that I spent time with uh, Mm -hmm. there on campus, I think I would have uh, transferred schools and gone back home because I I realized I was depressed. Yeah. Yeah. Only in retrospect. Yep. Same here. I I, I had gone through some depression very early on in my adolescent life and I didn't realize there was depression. We weren't talking about it in India. Nobody knew what depression was back then. You know, nobody, even now it's, it's very, I mean, now it's becoming more mainstream and people are becoming more aware, becoming, but very, we don't realize and catch these things in right. our children or right. in people going through some of that in their mid, um, in their adolescence and their early twenties, because those are some of the toughest years of life. If absolutely, you are, yeah, absolutely. And I had a question posed to me, uh, on my very first podcast that I was on, and this was January, I guess, of this year. Mm. And Aldevin is the podcaster. Mm. And he posed the question, well, when did you first start having problems with depression? Mm. And hmm, when did I? Yeah. And of all you, I know the question was, when did you first, or have you always had depression? And it's like, I never thought about that. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, I I have had a low level of depression. Mild depressive symptoms. My entire life. There's always been this low level of melancholy uh, there, this very serious undertone to my life. But until he had asked that question, yeah, I 
never yep. had that insight. Yeah. That, yes, there's always been that there. And then there's been times when it's dipped lower. Yeah. And again, in retrospect, you look yep. back and say, oh, <laughs> you yep. see where that's been punctuated at yep. certain times. And then you see that big drop into the cliff. But you talk about cumulative stress. Yeah. Well, you look at res you look at medical school and during medical school we had a child that was born prematurely spent six weeks in the icu wow. uh, he is born with a congenital anemia rare congenital anemia wow. uh, you look at residency and residency was brutal because in those days there was no work mm. hour limitations oh you know, you I, just i could go in and i could spend 36 to 40 hours stretches at the hospital when i was on call Wow. And then have two days off, maybe three days off at best. And about the time you recover, yeah. you start all over. Yeah. And, and, you know, you have that. And then as your kids growing up and then you go to the army and your first duty station within six months, your two senior colleagues leave and they say, you're in charge of the uh, chief of the ICU, you're chief of the internal medicine service, and you'll be our only internal medicine doctor here for the summer Welcome to the RV. <laughs> and it was the most miserable summer we spent in the RV. It was horrible, mm -hmm. absolutely horrible. Uh, you know, 37 months deployed, 30 months in combat zones over the course of our career. So three and a half months or three and a half years out of the life of my family. Wow. Uh, uh, a son with mental Talk illness, another son with uh, drug, uh, uh, substance abuse, uh, uh, addictions that he yeah. struggled with for over 20 years. Yeah. In, uh, he spent three stints in the Texas Department of Corrections. Thankfully, both are doing very well now. Uh, you know, so I could go on and on, you oh. know, with some of these uh, yeah. stresses and accumulation of that as you, uh, you know, weather these things, but mm -hmm. the toll it takes over time. Yeah. Yep. So that's uh, one of the yeah. reasons why they say depression is not caused by one thing, but it's accumulation of all these different things that happen in our lives that we just internalize, internalize. But one of the, the other things you had mentioned that I love was instead of denying it, you know, pushing it down, not addressing it, because it seems like that's what you did at the time where you didn't really look at it or process it and talk about it the way you do now. But <laughs> what was that? What was that like for you? In terms of what I'm not sure I quite understand um, the question. So the question, the question is, what was your recovery? Like when you really started looking oh, at your recovery and started to okay. not deny or repress or, you know, push down these emotions or these okay. things that you had uh, been been through, but collectively you were holding on to all of that in your brain, in your body, in your spirit. So tell us a little bit about your recovery and what that was like. The, the recovery was in fits and starts <laughs> as <laughs> I think it is with, with most people as they're recovering from an illness like this. Yeah. I, I was seeing uh, Dr. Mike Perry, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Perry, my uh, licensed clinical psychologist mm -hmm. uh, weekly mm -hmm. for a good period of time uh, with uh, so, so cognitive behavioral therapy that he, he was treating me with. Mm -hmm. I, seen a psychiatrist uh, there then i had seen my mike ask that i see my uh, pcp my primary care provider undergo a thorough evaluation because uh, i was still struggling and, and yep. having problems and she evaluated me and at the end of the evaluation she said dr montagon 
Uh, I don't find any causes. You're aware there can be medical causes, hypothyroidism, uh, other diseases that can contribute to uh, depression. And she said, I, I don't find anything else here that's organic that mm. can be contributing to depression. I, what do you think about medication? Mm. And I said, yeah, I, she said, I think you should be on medication. What do you think? I said, yes, I, I agree. So started medication mm. and then my sleep just remained that insomnia just wasn't getting any better uh, with the cognitive behavioral therapy, with the antidepressant, and then the psychologist started me on some medication, or she did, I, I can't remember which, mm -hmm. uh, that the psychiatrist or her, but then I actually started being able to have some sleep, and the first time I slept, you know, eight hours, wow. uninterrupted, it was like heaven, it's like, oh, oh I needed that sleep, gosh, it was, it was amazing, it was like, oh, wow, because I hadn't yeah. had a good night's sleep yeah. in about yeah. 10 months, yeah. you know, I just had not, I mean, uh, many nights, it was almost no sleep, maybe two hours at best, and yep. other nights, it seemed like I didn't sleep at all, that I would just Toss and turn, toss and turn, up and down, up and down, up and down, all that night long. That adds to your anxiety. That adds to oh yeah. That adds to you know. More it just compounds everything. It yep, just makes yep, everything yep. worse. It yep. just absolutely makes everything worse. Yep. Uh, so it's kind of fits and starts. I do remember there was times sitting on the edge of the bed, and Sherry and I would be talking, and I would be. I'd be in tears mm -hmm. and uh, I was still struggling and I would, I would tell her, honey, it, it's not going to be like this. I I'm going to get better. It's not always going to be like this, but it was sure painful. Oh, it was sure painful with that. So it was over time and with Mike working on me with the cognitive behavioral therapy to change that thinking mm -hmm. to, to work on that, uh, to address those things. Uh, to get the sleep improved to keep mm. the, with the medications to help the mood. Awesome. Uh, and so all these things working in concert uh, helped. And of course, uh, my sweetheart, God bless her, you know, the tender loving care that, like I said, she's always been my, my number one fan. Uh -huh. Always has been there. That's so, awesome. And then I had the support and I didn't disclose this to a lot of people. My mom was aware, my, my youngest brother was with it. And then yeah. my, uh, then later my siblings and only later, much later, my children. Yeah. And it was initially only a select few from church, but then more and more people that I made it known to and people praying for me and awesome. uh, were very supportive. Absolutely. I really like that you mentioned the use of the word support, because that's one of the biggest things that really, truly helps in the recovery process is getting the support. Because a lot of times when we do what we end up doing as a part of depression and some of these mental mood disorders is that we isolate and, you yes. know, they go, you know, we're, we're going to just take care of it by ourselves and it's going to go away with time and I'll get, I got this. But then the more support you have from people, and like you said, Dr. Perry, just it's the therapeutic alliance that you have with your therapist. And a lot of times I know people don't consider therapy, but that's one of the things that I want to interject and take this moment to educate people on is that it's one of the, it's like, we don't, you just knowing that somebody got your back, knowing that your feelings yes. are validated, knowing that connection with your therapist 
it's 40% healing. You know, I mean, studies show that the therapeutic alliance with your therapist is just so uh, unconditional in terms of the empathy and the compassion that when you're going through that time, because your loved ones, a lot of times just wants, want to fix things. They want to take care of you. They want to jump in and say, oh, it's okay. It's going to get over things or minimize some people, which is really bad. But that's one of the things that therapy does. And I think that's one of the things that having a good support system while you're going through it, knowing that, you know what, I don't need to be fixed. I'm not broken, but I'm going through a hard time of my life and I just need some time and people to know and give me that space and be on that boat with me to get through this time, you know, as opposed to trying to fix things with me. Because like you said, without deep suffering, we don't learn some of the deep lessons that we're supposed to learn if people just try to fix it for us. That's right. That's right. Now, my mother was very understanding. She suffered an episode where she had been depressed. And God bless her, it sounded like she only had one yeah. episode of major depression because my mother, as I said, is one of the most amazing women yeah. I've ever I've ever known. Uh, but and my brother Chris, because he's got a son who mm. has suffered depression almost mm. all his life. Mm. But that being said, they were two of my major supporters. Wow. Very understanding, very kind and gracious. I yeah. had younger sisters, she would send me frequent cards and yeah. others would call and check on me. I, I'm very, very close to my siblings. Yeah, I, I, awesome. I tell people I could drop in on any one of my seven siblings at any time and it would be, oh, Skip, it's so good to see you. Aww. How long are you going to stay? And it, it's not with That's this, awesome. oh, how long are you going to stay? It's Sincerely, right. how long are you going to get to stay? Right, right, right. Because we're all very close. We enjoy our time together. Yep, yep. yep. And they they were all very supportive and encouraging during that time. And mm -hmm. so I tell people your support network, your Absolutely. your faith, Absolutely. your family, yep. and your friends. Yep. That those three help build that foundation for support. Absolutely. And of course, that professional support yep. when you yep. need it. Yeah, yeah. That I received from Dr. Perry, yeah. my psychiatrist, my uh, primary care provider, yep. all of them working in concert with one another. Yeah, yeah. So true. That, that's uh, what I needed. Ultimate healing. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So tell us about, as we end, almost get to the end of this interview, tell us a little bit about, since um, I'm all about, you know, um, retrospectively, what, did, what are some of the things, big three things that you learned as a part of your recovery process? Um, I, I'm sure you mentioned this in your book, so I can't wait to get a um, read through the entire book. I read through some half of it, but I'm yet to read through the rest. But tell us three lessons that you'd leave us with um, as a part of this process and, you know, the suffering and now looking back almost has made you who you are today as we continue to evolve. So give us um, your three lessons for my audience. Three lessons. One, your mess can become your message. Oh, love it. So as I became, started recovering, so I was about a month into my recovery. Yep. And my brother, Chris, called very excited. He had attended a Bible study with Franklin Graham, mm. well-known evangelist, son of Billy Graham. Mm. And Franklin taught on suffering. And the gist of it was Franklin was say, uh, teaching, how do we think we are immune from suffering if Christ had to suffer so brutally on our behalf? Mm. And Chris ta shared this with me, and it struck me so powerfully 
Because up to this point, for months and months, I had been praying, Lord, please, please, please deliver me from this darkness. Yes. And it brought to mind this scripture from Philippians 3.10. Oh, that I might know him, referring to Christ. Paul writes this. And the fellowship that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Mm. I knew that scripture well. I prayed that scripture hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over my years of walking with Christ. Mm. But in my suffering, I wanted deliverance. Over the period of two days, my prayers then shifted. Mm. Lord, what would you have me learn? Yes. How might I use this to help others? Mm. And it was out of that that I received this calling to share my message, knowing that I needed to, I was compelled to, that there were others that needed to hear this, Mm -hmm. that they needed to know that you're not a wimp, you're not weak to say I'm hurting, Mm -hmm. that I need help, that they needed, they needed this example of this tough guy. Absolutely. Who could, if you will, pave the path for them to come forward and say that I was able to do that at the whole before the whole hospital before I retired. I had asked the command for an opportunity to do that. He gave me that opportunity, and so in morning session, afternoon session in the hospital auditorium, I shared my story and lessons learned. Mm. I made some public service announcements for the Department of the Army. Mm-hmm. With that in mind. And then out of that was the genesis for my book, Wrestling Depression is Not for Wimps. So your mess can become your message. Love it. That's that's one. I think the other is uh, just what you read, that part that suffering is inevitable in life. Yep. Yep. It, it comes to all of us. Yes. And if if you haven't, experience that kind of suffering it's it's simply you haven't lived long enough that's yes. the reality of it yes. but how do we deal with that suffering yes it is going to determine how we move on in life whether we keep looking back at the rearview mirror which ties us to the past yeah or whether we're looking forward so that we can move forward yeah in in our lives. Mm. So that would be Lovely. number number two. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think number three is not to what would be to then how then do you take that in in service to others in other areas? Absolutely. How do you how do you not waste the pain as my wife and I say, don't yeah. waste the pain. Yes. So use that in service to others. And I I think those would be the three biggest lessons that I learned out of this. If there was a fourth, it was the life lessons I learned from wrestling, that self-determination, that be, you know, persevere, get yourself back up when you've been knocked down. My brother Chris likes to say wrestling, wrestling is, is a good, uh, teacher for life because life knocks you on your back just like wrestling and you have to learn to get up off your back yeah. and and that's the truth that you learn to deal with defeat and yeah. on a wrestling mat i tell people wrestling is is 
face to face, hand to hand, one, uh, you know, uh, combat. Yeah. There you are on the mat. Yeah. It's just you and that other person. Yeah. And uh, there's nobody out there to help you. Yeah. And so you either win or lose on your own. And so you can have the triumph mm-hmm. and exultation of, of winning or the agony of defeat. And it is no fun to lose <laughs> out in front of everybody when you're out on that mat. Believe oh, you me. No, no, I <laughs> um, you know, I love what you just said. And I often tell my patients and I'll talk to my audience about this too, that, you know, it's not how many times we fall in life. It's how fast we get back up each time because falling is inevitable. We, we That's right. get, get there. We, at some point we have to face it, but you know, with every suffering and with every pain, every time we go through that pain, how fast are we picking ourselves back up and what are the lessons that it's truly teaching us so that, you know, we can pay it forward um, later. So really, yes, really, loved what what you left us with um so tell us how people can find you um skip the best place is at my website www.wrestlingisnotforwimps.com okay www.wrestlingisnotforwimps.com Awesome. Um, and then I will also list all your social handles and everything um, on the show notes so that way people can find you. But thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us and sharing with us your entire experience and the wisdom um, that you have brought as a result of your suffering and some of the deep things that you went through uh, and are open now to talking about it so that together we can, you know, um, raise awareness on mental health and raise awareness that, you know, even people who are high functioning, people who are physicians, we all go through it at some point of our life, whether we look at it or not, whether we stay in denial or not. Um, I, I like to now recently, this phrase has become one of my favorites is that happiness is not a choice for a lot of people because genuinely people going through depression want to be happy. It's not that mm. they don't want to be happy, <laughs> yes, they want yes, to be happy yes. but it's not a choice because of the brain biochemical you know, mm. imbalances that are happening, but suffering is a choice and we can continue to stay in that suffering or we can seek help, seek support, seek, you know, do stuff and get us out of that mess and learn some deep lessons that we need to learn and become who we become as a part of them. So um, absolutely loved this um, chat with you. So thank you so much for being here. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you loved what you hear, heard from with Skip, please, please, please be so kind and subscribe so that you can, you know, continue to have um, li- listen to guests like Skip and in the future and be inspired and be hopeful if you're in a place that you find yourself in a very dark place. And please rate and review us so that it will really help us with the longevity of the show and help others find the show. So we would love to hear what you have to say. So please give us a rating and a review thank you so much for tuning in today and um and see you next time and until then have a very blessed day thank you so much Bye.